Genesis chapter 37. So where is your God? That was a question that has been asked uh, throughout the ages. At the end of the Civil War and during it, people asked, where's God in all this? A country ripping itself apart and shooting brother and cousin and a nation being torn in two as the war between the states took place. And tragedy was everywhere. Where's your God? The question was asked like during World War One, World War Two. It's a question that people were asking, flocking to churches on like 9-11 or after the effects of Hurricane Katrina or just even recently with the earthquake in Haiti. It's the most penetrating, disturbing question. Where is God in the midst of this trouble and this disaster when I cannot absolutely see his hand or what he's doing? And I would imagine that you have asked that question. Where's where's God? My marriage, it's, it's unraveling or perhaps it's even ended. You're going through a sickness or a disease. You're facing cancer. Maybe you have a child and that child is not only wayward, walked away from God and everything you hold dear, but perhaps that child's even walked away from you. It's left you lonely. You're hurting and you've asked that question. You've lost a job. Your crops have failed. Maybe you're in a dead end job. Maybe you're facing some sort of physical suffering. Maybe you're going through just a like a season of sadness and, and sorrow. Maybe there's even a, a season in your life where you just feel drained of spiritual vitality. You, you once had it, but now it's, it's something's, something's happened. And you yearn and you ask, God, where are you? I, I can tell you that, that I've asked that question. Like when uh, people dear to me have died, in some cases tragically. Like, whoa, God. Where are you? I remember asking that question coming out of high school graduation in that summer between college and had just some horrific events take place in my family. I'm asking, well, where is God? If he even exists, where is he? Or maybe the times where finances were extremely tight or school just seemed just overwhelming or your schedule was just like, oh, my goodness, there's just far more to do than I could ever possibly get done. The people of Israel throughout their history asked this as, as they watched their, their people just being slaughtered and killed and hauled off into slavery and made into exiles. And they'd ask this, God, where are you? Are you, are you absent? Are you, are you sleeping? And I would imagine that there's people here today. This is the question that you are asking. God, where are you? It's, it's like a migraine that's just shooting through your head. It's painful. It's hurtful. Lord, where are you? And not all of us can look back not so far and hear the echoes of that question resonating in our heart. But this question about where are you, God, when life seems to be unraveling is a question that God chooses to address. It seems to be a pattern that people face this and God answers the question when you open the book of Genesis, specifically when you look at the life of Joseph. God chooses the answer this question because we face times in life where life absolutely doesn't make sense. And the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is foundational for all of theology. And it is not only is the rest of theology developed from the book of Genesis, but the rest of our lives are to be built upon the principles he teaches us. And if we spent little time in Genesis or no time at all, 
we are probably missing key feature pieces in our system of beliefs, in our worldview, that God clearly articulates and teaches in the narratives of of the book of Genesis. And so by the time we come to Genesis chapter 37, there is a young man by the name of Joseph. You could think of him as a, a guy 17 years old. And he is now at the end of this chapter asking this question. But to begin, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to pick up the scene here where we're going to see the events that led to the tragedies in his life. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He is the grandson of... Of Abraham. You remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I am going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a nation, a people. They will be so numerable that they'll be like the stars in the heavens or the sand in the sea. You simply will not be able to count them. And I will make you and give you a blessing. Not only will you be blessed, but through your family, you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. God had made this covenant. It was binding. It is absolutely true. He is going to fulfill it with Abraham. When we come to Jacob, Jacob is his grandson. And we're looking at a time period right about 1898 B.C. So this is about 1900 years before Jesus Christ comes to this earth. These scenes start to take place. And this is where we pick up the story, the the account of the life of Joseph. Now, verse two, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed what is taking place. Jacob, like his predecessors, Isaac and Abraham, were nomads. Okay, God had made a promise. You're going to receive this land, the land of the Canaanites. It is going to be yours. But now, still at the time of Jacob, Jacob still is nomadic. He's a sojourner. He is a, he kind of walks around. He doesn't have a place necessarily to call his own. And yet God had made the promise. This is going to be your land. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. He actually had four wives and he had 12 sons. After having this first 10 sons, he finally had the son, Joseph. Joseph was born to the, his wife, Rachel. Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved the most. He had such a fond affection. He actually worked seven years to be able to obtain her hand in marriage. And then you remember Uncle Laban, the nice little wonderful uncle he was. He kind of switched things up there like, oh, whoops, I gave you the wrong gal. Okay, well, you know, okay, you can work a seven, another seven more years. So I'll give you Rachel now. Okay, well, Rachel was the woman that he loved. It was he. Rachel was his favorite wife. And when Rachel had been barren all these years, but finally in his old age to Jacob, Rachel gives birth to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's world starts revolving around this one boy. Now, they are nomadic. They, they had raised sheep. That's what they did. And so there's we pick up the scene. Joseph's 17 years old. They're pastoring their flocks and. And Joseph brings back a bad report. You see that there? This is a little bit more than tattling. The word bad there in Hebrew is evil. He actually discloses just how wicked his brothers are. 
We don't know exactly what they've done, but uh, you can either read before Genesis and stay tuned as we make our way through Genesis. You're going to find out just how wicked these boys could be. And so Joseph brings back the account and the bad report back to his father and tells them what has been taking place. And he paints this picture where Joseph is is really in contrast to his other brothers. Now, verse three. Now, Israel, Israel and Jacob are used interchangeably. Remember when Jacob wrestled with God, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. That word means God perseveres or he perseveres with God. And so Israel, Jacob, they're used interchangeably. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Now, Joseph is the recipient of his father's special love. It had happened from the time that he was born. And even after Rachel bore uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob, another son, Benjamin, and she died in the process of giving birth to their, the youngest one, the 12th son, Joseph was the favored one. And then at age 17, Israel does something. He selects Joseph and he gives him this gift. It, your Bible may read very colored tunic. If you have a King James Bible, it reads this robe of many colors. Real, in actuality, it would be a long sleeved, long garment that go down your feet and down to your wrists. It was really a robe to indicate nobility, uh, to realize that someone is of great stature. It's a symbol that specializes Jacob's special love for Joseph. And so he made them this this tunic and perhaps it had a lot of color to it, but it was definitely long. And you cannot work wearing a a robe like this. I mean, think of it. Can you moving around trying to chase sheep? You, You can't do that. That'd be like the equivalent of like a framer showing up with a full length mink coat on, you know, and he shows up here and. And he's like, I'm here ready to work, but you can't really move around with things like that. That's the whole point. Jacob is has been selected Joseph because you don't have to work like your other brothers. I'm setting you apart. It'll be you are really the hope of the family. I'm putting my hope and my love specially on you. Imagine if uh, you had a lot of kids and for some of you, you don't have to imagine too hard. Like, yeah, I don't have to imagine so hard, you know, but imagine you had a lot of kids. And let's say they were just bad news, always in trouble, always fighting, causing problems at school, getting in fights with people. You know, um, they didn't care about their school. They couldn't keep a job. They were disrespectful. Their mouth was a disaster. They did lots of bad things. You could never trust them. And that was kind of just life there, except your youngest. He was just so very different than the rest. I mean, he was kind, respectful. Not only did he go to school, but he got great grades. He, the teachers loved him. Coaches like, oh, man, where did we get you? He, he, was just, he just could seemingly do no wrong. Well, let's say, you know, at, at the time he's 17, graduation time, you as the dad, you're going to do something to just really recognize and honor this really cool kid that you have. He's graduating from high school, top of his class. He's got honors. And so at the graduation party at your house, all the families gathered around and you're mowing through all the food, right? And uh, you're going to get up and say, you know, this is obviously a special day. Um, our youngest is, is graduating and he has done a fine job. Um, I've got a little something for you. Uh, it's sitting out in the driveway. So you, all, they, all the family goes out and here comes the youngest. And 
he's like, whoa, what's going on here, you know? And he walks out the door, and sitting in the driver is this, is this sign. And it says, congratulations, you deserve it. And it's sitting on top of a brand new sports car. <gasps> and he's like, whoa. And, and you pull out the keys to that car and says, well done, good job, boy. Whoa. You know what happened there, don't you? All of the other kids that you've got, they are totally tuned in. And it's not like you forgot them. Remember, you gave them a duffel bag when they graduated from school, right? And you got some trinkets at the office party, right? You're like, water bottle, got the company name. It leaks, but I'll give it to them anyway. You know, and so you give it to It's not like you forgot them. It's just that you had such a favorite son. I mean, this guy really did it. You know, you know if you do that, you know what you're ha- what's happening there. Those older kids... They are totally picking up. They know that you favor that boy. They can sense it. That's what's happening here. Let me assure you, when it comes to parenting or grandparenting, showing favoritism always leads to fallout. You want to see what this looks like? Just look at the text. How did these boys respond? Verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers so that they, you might want to underline it, hated him. And they could not speak to him on friendly terms. There is no shalom, no peace in the house of Jacob because of favoritism. Let me just tell you, the quickest way, the quickest road to alienate your child is to compare them. What it does is it fosters inferiority. And if you do not think that playing favorites with your kids or your grandkids does not have implications, I want you to look really closely as we go through Genesis 37. You get it planted in your head, your heart, and your mind. Because playing favorites and giving preferential treatment leads to serious problems. You think, oh, I'm just, I'm helping them and I just can't help myself, right? You're hurting them. And in the case of Jacob... It led to the destruction of his family. And by the way, if you grew up in a home where there were favorites, either you were the recipient of being the favorite or you were alienated by that. Let me tell you something. You do not have to live that way. You don't have to follow in the patterns that were sent because, you know, with God, all things are possible. Now, let me just tell you, your default setting, your modus operandi, your, where you go to act to just autopilot, is to basically fall into the patterns of your parents, for better or for worse. But if you grew up in a home with abuse, lots of yelling and anger, mistreatment, favoritism, cruelty, calling names, belittling, painful as that is, through your relationship with Jesus Christ, you can live differently. You can change. You don't have to fall back into the patterns, but you do have to turn to God and ask for strength. And this is is something that you have to be proactive and intentional because if you just like, I'm just going to float through parenting, you're going to basically fall back into those same patterns. And even though our family influences us, It does not need to define us. For Jacob, even though he wrestled with God in prayer, he obviously hadn't wrestled with God on the matter of his parenting. And what we're about to witness, as we're in Genesis 37, is like a powder keg that's getting ready to explode. Don't miss it. His brothers hated him, and they could not speak to him. Can't you see it? 
You know, you know what that's like? You ever been in tension with, with, in family? I'm sure you have. Where you, you can't really talk to each other very civilly. There's just a cutting edge in comments. There's that look in the eye. Guys really respond to issues of respect. And there is just disrespect that is dished out. Man, it is tense. And that is the situation in Jacob's home. And Jacob fostered it. I don't know what he was thinking, but he went ahead with it. Well, so we have Joseph. He is hated by his brothers. But Joseph is the recipient of some dreams. Look at verse 5. When, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. What kind of dream could this be? Well, we're going to find out. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. Can't you see it? Okay, 17 years old. Perhaps it's all the insecurity that's been fostered by all this resentment that he gets from his brothers. All the pounding and hitting and mistreatment. And perhaps they spit on him and they just, they just abuse this guy. They hate him. They hate his reports. They don't like him. He's running around with this huge tunic on. Goes to his wrists, goes down to his legs. He doesn't have to do work. Man, and he, 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 he's just naive. And you see his naivete being displayed here. He, he goes, he knows the, these guys hate him, but maybe he thinks like, you know, if I tell them these dreams that I've had, then they will see that really I, I am, I, I'm, I'm a good guy and that they're going to need me in life. I, I'm important to them. In fact, I'm important to our family's history and my future. And so they, they need me. And so he said, he said, please, please, verse six, listen to this dream, which I have had. And verse seven, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. He tells them this dream that God had given him of his sheaves. And he, he feels like this is going to be good. They're going to like this. They're going to grow from this experience. They're going to see my need in the family. They hate him. And he's like, oh, did you, did you like that dream? Oh, I had another one. It's even better. Listen to this. You know, and he just he, he lacks social graces. He doesn't have real good discernment at this point in his life. He thinks like, whoa, they're not getting it. I will tell them the other dream. This one, it's going to click. It's all going to make sense to him now. And so he says, verse nine, now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the saying in mind three different times the narrator has pointed out they've hated him now they say they are actually jealous of him but notice jacob he keeps this in mind for several reasons first of all jacob himself had actually experienced and met god in a dream remember in bethel and so he himself had had an experience like this where god met him in a dream so he's not going to, even though he's going to rebuke and say, hey, what are you doing here? And he probably says, why did you tell your brothers this? Why don't you just come talk to me? But he rebukes them. But he himself had experienced a dream like that. And second of all, 
Jacob knew that sometimes God changes even the patterns and the customs of the birth order, where the oldest was always to receive the double portion and he is the automatic head of the family. For even in Jacob's life, that had been reversed. Even though he was the youngest, he emerged with the one with the double blessing. And so he's mindful of these things. And he keeps them and and remembers them and he thinks about them. And he is fully aware that what Jacob is what jo- Jacob is hearing about Joseph's life, this very well could be a reality because he had seen it himself. Now, they, his brothers, they hate him. Joseph has had these dreams. But I want you to see what is happening. The fuse on this keg, this powder keg, is getting shorter and shorter. Look at this next scene. Then, verse 12, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now, you might just go, huh, no big deal. Sheep herders, they run sheep up. They go to a place called Shechem. Well, if you've read Genesis, you don't just go, Shechem. It's like, Shechem. Do you remember what happened in Shechem, don't you? Shechem was the place, it was the, the town, the village, where the, these brothers' sister, Dinah, she had been raped. And these guys weren't going to take that sitting down. And so after their sister had been defiled, you know what these boys did? They went and they slew, they killed all the males in Shechem and they plundered their village. They said, you mess with our daughter? Well, you mess with with my sister? I'll show you what we'll do to you. And they obliterated all the males. They, They totally plundered this village. Well, these boys, they're tough. They kind of rule the world. They're their own little gods. They're going to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Like, you know what? We're going to take the sheep. We're going to go about 50 miles north from the Hebron Valley up to Shechem, up to the north there. About 50 miles, we're going to go and take our sheep over there and kind of graze the ground there. So that's what they planned on doing. His brothers, they went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And verse 13, Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring a flock in Shechem? See, Joseph, he even said, I've become odious in this land right here. He knows that his boys are in real danger. And so he says, come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, and he said to him, speaking of Joseph, he said, okay, I'll go. See, at this point, Jacob is very worried about his boys. He knows their revenge is going to come at some point. And, and what is surprising is that Jacob just doesn't seem to get it. Either he overlooks it, he's just like, oh, I just, he always closes an eye when those boys are mean to each other and especially hating Joseph. And he doesn't realize, but he's sending Joseph to the wolves. And he goes ahead and he goes and sends him. Joseph says, hey, you want me to do it? No problem. I'll go. Verse 14. Then he said to him, go now and see about the, flo- the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. Tell me, I know I can trust you. You always give me the real story. Not, you don't just feed me lines. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, verse 15, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? Can't you see it? Joseph's kind of looking around. Hey, they're supposed to be here. Here comes a guy. Whoa, did they, you know, I'm sure Joseph is fully well aware how dangerous this situation is. Did, did they kill my brothers? What's going on? Why does this guy want to talk to me? And so he, he asked them the question. He said to him, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm just looking for my brothers. Hey, please tell me where they are pasturing their flock. 
And the man said, verse 17, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. To jo- so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, Dothan is about 14 miles north, so he kind of makes his way up there. And now the scene changes. Now the narrator jumps into the camp of the boys. And you're going to start to hear what is going on at their thoughts and what's taking place there. Now, verse 18 The scene now changes. Now you're with the boys. And when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. The scene here is they see him. How in the world did they know that it was Joseph? That's right. You cannot miss him. Dad had pegged him out, man. And I don't think it was fluorescent, okay? But it was long. It was flowing. And perhaps it had color. And here he comes. You can see him in the field, you know? And like, they know, they've seen that stride before. There's that long coat, keeps him from working. You know, Joseph's back at home. These boys are working. They see it. And notice what they say. Let it hit you. They plotted against him to put him to death. They're going to kill him. They hate him. They hate him. They hate that coat. They hate his dreams. Why don't we just put his dreams to death? And so they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. And now then, now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. And then let us see what will become of his dreams. So what they've got, the idea is like, hey, you know what? What we're going to do, we're just going to kill him. Okay, we'll throw him into one of these pits, a pit here uh, in the land. They would have called they would make what is called cisterns. Okay, when you couldn't actually drill down and, get, and dig down and make a well, you would create a cistern. It would be like this big, huge pit, be lined with rock. Oftentimes, they'd plaster it. And if there was sufficient rainfall, you could get runoff from the land, and it would collect into these cisterns. And so that was their means of getting water and being able to store it, especially for their livestock. And so there are pits, even in this area today, you can actually see these cisterns. Now, they're rock-walled. If you were in one, you're probably not going to be able to get out of it. Okay, it's just it's just stone. Many of them had water. So to throw someone in there, they're going to probably drown. Right. Okay. so the idea is we're going to just kill him. We'll throw him in there and we'll just tell dad, you know, some wild beast devoured him. Big deal. He's gone. All right. And then he said, but notice in verse 20, then let us see what will become of his dreams. This is becoming to become so very important. They think if we kill him, we kill the dreams. It doesn't matter that God gave the dreams. We kill him. We kill his dreams. But Reuben, verse 27. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Oh, no, let us not take his life. And Reuben further said to them, Ah, shed no blood. Throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And there's a point here that's being made by the narrator, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore them, to restore him to his father. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about Reuben. You guys know who Reuben is, don't you? He is the oldest, okay? And you're going, whoa, finally, a little bit of leadership here. The oldest one, he's going to, like, make sure that they don't kill Joseph. In fact, he wants to rescue him. And so we have insight in what he's thinking. But, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not wrecking your idea of the patriarchs and this family of these 12 sons. But you need to see what they really were like. Reuben, oldest, 
he made a major transgression. In Genesis 35, verse 22, there is this, there is, it's recorded that Reuben actually had a sexual relationship with one of Jacob's wives. Meaning, one of, one of, one of, one of Jacob's wives, the, the mother of, her name is Bilhah, the mother of Dan and Nephtali, he had actually had a sexual relationship with. And Jacob had heard of it, but he did nothing about it. But Reuben was always aware that his dad knew just how vile and wicked a thing that he did. And so perhaps Reuben always walks around with a great deal of fear and guilt. And maybe perhaps he's becoming a better man, but he is going to wants to rescue Joseph from this wicked plot that has been hatched by the brothers. And so verse 23, so it came about that when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, that very colored tunic that was on him. They hated it. They hated that dad loved him more than the others. They hated that garment. They ripped it off him. They tore it from him. They stripped him. What they're doing is they're defrocking him as this, the future head of the household. And verse 24, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And now the pit was empty without any water in it. The reason that that's pointed out to you, there's no water into it, is to show you just the fingerprint of God's sovereignty in the midst of wickedness of man. If that pit was filled with water, the boy is alive as long as he can dog paddle. And as soon as he's tired, he's done. But this pit they threw him in was empty. Bad, but it's empty. Verse 25. You know, all this uh, talking about killing your brother and actually ripping off the little tunic there and throwing the boy in the pit. That makes a guy hungry, right? So what do you need to do? If you're a guy, you have to eat, right? Well, threw him in the pit. Let's eat. Verse 25. And they sat down to eat a meal. What in the world? Can you imagine what that would? And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to bring them to Egypt. And Judah, Judah said to his brothers, uh, you want to latch on to Judah. We're going to learn more about him next week. Judah said to his brothers, hey, wait a second, I got an idea. Hey, what profit is it for us? Get it? What profit is for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Hey, we don't make any any money on this. Any dinero. Oh, I got this idea. Look at verse 27. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For after all, remember, he's our brother. He's our own flesh. All of a sudden, the magnanimous Judah steps forward like, oh, we, we don't want to do that. He's our own flesh. He's our brother, remember? Right? And his brother's like, yeah, that's right. He is our brother, and we could make some money on this guy. And then, verse 28, then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit. I wonder what Joseph is thinking this time. If he could overhear their conversation between their mouthfuls of food he knows the plan that they're concocting. Or if he couldn't, let's say they were eating away, they didn't want to keep hearing him going, come on, guys, this is done, let me out of the closet kind of language, right? They, they, uh, then he, if, he, if he's away, he thinks maybe they're finally like the joke is over, right? And they're going to pull me out. They can't let this boy go, though, because he already has a history of telling Dad what really happens. They're not going to stand for one more evil report. So they're pulling Joseph out. I don't know what Joseph's thinking at this point. And they pulled him out of the pit, but he got it figured out real quick, verse 28, and sold him to the Ishmaelites 
for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. They pull this boy out, and Ishmaelites, the Midianites, who they actually sold, you know what? These are actually descendants of Abraham. These are actually distant relatives of these boys. And they sell him 20 shekels of silver. That was the going price of slaves that, in that time. So they sell him. And thus, verse 28 ends, they brought Joseph into Egypt. Oh, before we just move on here real quick, quickly, I, I want to point out something. Unchecked jealousy, hatred, anger can lead to unthinkable destruction. Hatred, jealousy, it's kind of like rust is to metal. And it just eventually eats it away. And, and friends, you need to know this. If you are harboring hatred, you're just jealous about someone. You just keep playing over scenarios over and over again. You foster this idea of revenge. You need to know that it is eating you up and destroying you. And you are then in a position where you become capable of doing things you thought would never happen and you would never do. Because what anger does and jealousy and hatred, it eats us up from the inside. And it, it just not only do we distorts our view of people and how to love them, but it diminishes our heart for God and it churns us. It twists us. It brings us to a point where we start thinking and doing even things we know to be wrong and are wicked. And it's fostered by comparison and it's fueled by feelings of inadequacy. And you see this taking place in the lives of these boys. When it comes to the seed of hatred and jealousy, let me just tell you a few things. First of all, do not plant them in the lives of others. Jacob did. Do you see what Jacob did? It had tremendous consequences. Don't, don't go around bragging and trying to make other people jealous with your possessions or your good looks or your accolades or the nice things that have happened to you. Treat each other and people with humility. Do not plant those kind of seeds in other people's lives. Second of all, do not, do not water hatred and jealousy. Don't be putting fuel to the fire. Don't keep rehearsing these scenarios in your mind. Just because what happens is it, it's eating you up, it's destroying you, but it's going to have an evil effect in your life. And then finally, recognize that hatred and jealousy, they're like sharp, painful thorns, and they are destructive. You know, I don't know about you, but I've kind of been looking at my yard and, you know, the grass is starting to come out of dormancy. I hope it's not dead. And I noticed that there's these weeds. There's thistles, dandelions, that beautiful Dallas grass, you know, just kind of. And I'm like, where did this come from? You know, and so I'm pulling it out. Now, if you just kind of like, well, just pull the little top part off and do anything. You got to pull it out by its roots. But I don't want my whole, whole lawn to look like dandelions, okay? Just some of it. The backyard. No, okay. I don't want that either. But, so I've got to pull it out by the roots. When it comes to anger, hatred, jealousy, it must be eradicated and pulled out from the roots. And if it is not, it's going to spread. It will. And it will not only destroy you, it will destroy the people around you. And that is exactly what happened with these boys. Well... Reuben, maybe he was being ultra-responsible. Maybe he didn't want to see what was going to happen to Joseph. Perhaps he goes and actually tends to the flock, what they're supposed to be doing anyway. Verse 29, now Reuben returned to the pit. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. This is the sign of mourning, still practiced even today. And he returned 
to his brothers and said, hey, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? What happened to him? What did you do? What am I to do now? Where can I go if he is not alive? Well, obviously, it didn't take a whole lot of coercing. And Reuben, instead of going and trying to chase down the Midianites that have captured their brother and now turn him into a slave, nah, he goes with the plan. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. Can't you see it? The caravan moving off to Egypt. Joseph, their brother, chained. He's a slave. They kill a goat. And they dump that very colored tunic that they hate so much and they just dip it in all his blood there. Can't you see the scene? Well, that's what's taking place. They dip it in verse 32. They, and then they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, Hey, Dad, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Notice they don't call him our brother. He's your son. Now, what they're trying to do is they're trying to deceive and trick their father. They are actually trying to do what actually Jacob did to his dad. Do you remember Isaac? Remember Isaac's blind. He's he's just about ready to die. And he wants this meal. And Jacob tricked him. He tricked him by actually dressing up in his brother's clothes. And remember, mom, they killed. He killed two goats. And mom cooked up the savory dish that his dad just loves, right? And he used two goats and a garment to trick his father. And now that same kind of trick is now being played on him. They just kind of cast that garment down. It's got all that goat's blood. Hey, is this your son's garment? They don't necessarily tell the story. It's like, here's the picture. You draw the conclusion. He sees it. He doesn't even think that the same sin that he had committed against his father would now be committed against him. Well, verse 33, then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And so Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol, the abode of the dead, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. You need to know that uh, learning to lie is going to leave you a legacy that you do not want. In some respects, Jacob is the product of his past. He, Jacob himself had been cunning, deceiving. He was self-centered. And those same patterns were passed on to his boys. He had deceived his father. He had tricked his brother out of his birthright. He was he himself, the trickster, as he was called, was the one now being the recipient of this kind of trickery in his own life. You remember that that robe, that robe that had been a symbol of his love now becomes the symbol of the death of a dream. Now, by reading the story for all of you and us who are parents, there's times where we have blown it with our kids, haven't we? And and some of us perhaps conclude that our kid is so far away from God and away from us and just totally making one bad mistake after another because of things that I did. 
you know what? Maybe you did have a role. Maybe you were like Jacob. And there are things that you did that are contributing to some of the issues that are happening in your kid's life. But God doesn't want you to spend the rest of your life groveling in the ground. Woe is me. God wants you to experience forgiveness and freedom from guilt. In fact, he says in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants us to experience his love and his life. And faith is taking God at his word. Stop beating yourself up over and over and over. And you got these chains weighed down to you because you know what? There is forgiveness and cleansing found in Christ. And you need to know that as adult children, maybe you're the wayward one and you're here today. You ultimately are responsible for your decisions. You cannot always play the victim role. You're an adult. And so we see when we come to a guy like Jacob, he feels like I'm going to go to my grave in mourning. Hold on. When we make our way through the rest of these chapters, you're going to see that God is going to be working something far greater than he could ever imagine. In fact, we get just a hint of it in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, speaking of Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And so here we see that Joseph has now been transplanted. He's stripped away from his family. He's been detested by his brothers. He's been separated from his father. He's been taken away from his homeland. He's now made a slave and a man who is absolutely pagan. But you know what? As bad as this is, as terrible of a scene this is, where Joseph himself has to be asking the question, God, where are you? You need to know that this scene itself will later become celebrated by the people of Israel. You see, even in the midst of the trials and tragedies, God works out his perfect and good plan. The people of Israel and all the problems that befell them and the perplexities of life that they faced, do you know what? They would go back to this story, this true story of Joseph's life, because it taught them that even in the midst of failure and wickedness and evil, God can work out his particular plan. Where's God? He's right with Joseph. Joseph may feel like he's abandoned, but you know what? He is not forgotten. He feels like he is at the end of the world, but he is really in the center of God's will. He has been stripped down and he has been broken, but God is the one who is going to strengthen him. And friends, you might feel that way with your relational issues and the problems and the hurt and even the deep-seated sorrow that you're in. This is not the time to give up because God is doing some of his best work in our situation of brokenness. You see, even in our darkest hours, we can trust that God is orchestrating his perfect plan, and we must. Let me give you just a psalm. In Psalm 34, verse 18, David wrote this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them through them all, out of them all. God's plans are not thwarted by man's depravity. And the story of Joseph gives us real comfort and hope. And there's one other thing I want to point out. If you feel like you're a failure, you want to take hope that God is greater than your failures. 
he is going and is in the process of working out his plan, just like he did for Jacob and Joseph, so he is for you. And if you want to see just how wicked things can be and how great God can be, come back next week. We're going to look at the kind of like the forbidden chapter of the Bible. It is the one that is always skipped over, oftentimes even by commentators. I'll encourage you to read it. You decide if you want your kids to hear this story next Sunday or some other time because we're going to go through it. But you're going to see just how bad things can get and just how great God is. So what do we do when the times we feel like, where is God? We realize he is with us. And so we, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We do not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. And you know what? He will make your path straight. Turn to him and trust him. For even in our darkest hours, we can trust that God is orchestrating his perfect plan. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this amazing passage The wickedness that was demonstrated by Joseph's brothers was even used by you to fulfill your perfect, righteous, amazing will and plan. And so, Father, I pray if there is someone here who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior, they do so even now and just pray with me and say, Lord, you know my sin. You know how wicked I have been and can be. I turn from my sin and I trust your son, Jesus, as my Savior. And for the rest of us, Lord, keep our hearts fixed upon you. Help us to trust you with everything that we have. Give us the faith to walk with you and to believe you're going to work all things together for your good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.